<clears throat> well, this is what we call a, uh, a one-off sermon. It is not going to be related to the, um, to the series that has gone before during Advent, nor will it be related to the ones coming after in January. But this, I thought this was an appropriate passage because we're about nine days or so after celebrating Christmas, and this passage takes place eight days after the birth of Jesus. Um, so it seemed like a good time to, uh, to jump into this passage. Uh, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, there are a lot of distractions and difficulties and, and, um, and sadnesses and longings uh, swirling in me and in each of us. <clears throat> but we want you to focus us on your word spoken to us, on this great consolation that you offer us in this passage. This will be a waste of time if you don't show up. So don't let us, uh, don't let us just play church today. We want to be filled with your presence, Holy Spirit. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. There is, there is a, a movie that came out last month that was the final installment in a series of movies um, that I've been keeping up with. I haven't seen the final one, but I've read the books. It's The Hunger Games. Have you guys seen The Hunger Games movies or read the books? They're quite good, right? Well, at least the first one was. That's okay. The first one was really good. But we had to have, so it's been, a, it's been three books long and four movies because they've got to make their money grab. But there's been four movies. What would have happened? The first one, like I said, was really good. What would have happened if the story had ended there? You guys know, uh, some of y'all know this story. There's basically an evil empire. There's all these enslaved people. And one of the parts, one of the things that happens is that the evil empire takes um, a few people from the enslaved peoples and makes them fight it out to the death inside of an arena. Okay? At the end of the first book, our our heroine Katniss survives the arena. That was a good ending, right? That was good news. We were all cheering for her. We wanted her to, to live and be able to, um, to survive and live with Peta or Gail, depending on what type of person you are. I'm a Peta man myself. <laughs> you wanted it, you wanted it, that was good, right? She survived. Great news. She could have run off with Peta, not Gail, never Gail. She could have run off and lived happily in the woods where nobody was bugging her and they would have been fine. But that wouldn't have been a very satisfying story, would it? It would have left the evil empire, the capital in charge. It would have left her people, her family, her friends, uh, and people all over. It would have left them enslaved to this, uh, to this capital. It would have been an early ending had that happened. It wouldn't, have been any, it wouldn't have been satisfying as a story. What we are talking about today, what this passage is about, is the full consummation, the full ending of the story. It is not talking about the early ending that so many of us settle for. You see, many of us settle for what, um, we, think, what we think we mean by salvation or as, Simeon said, as it says of Simeon, the consolation of Israel, the, the rescue, the redemption, all these words that the Bible used. What we think of when we think of that and what we mean by that is actually an early ending, most of us. But what Simeon offers us here in his declaration is the full story. 
the full ending where evil is defeated and everything is set to right. So we're jumping into that by examining three, uh, three points from this passage. The first one is an ancient salvation. What did Israel mean? What did Simeon mean when he talked about the consolation of Israel? Secondly, our modern salvation. How have we in our minds and in our churches shortened this story to be an early ending? And thirdly, suffering salvation. What does, what does suffering, what does this last bit that, that Simeon says to Mary, what does that have to do with this great plan of rescue? All right, far too many things to actually talk through. So uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and jump in. So first, an ancient salvation for Israel. An ancient salvation, to understand what Israel meant when they talked about their own salvation or, or the great rescue, you have to understand two things. One is the king and the other is the temple. You see, their hopes of rescue would only come about when the king and the temple were in their proper place. When the king and the temple were in their proper place. So G- Simeon calls Jesus the consolation of Israel in this passage. And what, uh, what he means by that is this ancient hope that we read, uh, we read the passage from Isaiah because that's a really good summary of this ancient hope of Israel that they clung to and, and longed for uh, and prayed towards and lived towards. Because uh, in, this, in this passage, it, talks, it says, uh, the mountain of the house of the Lord. Which is the temple. That's the temple mountain. The temple mount in Jerusalem. And it says it's going to be the, become the highest, the highest mountain in all the land. I love I loved this, uh, this imagery. It says, and all the nations shall flow to it. It uses this water language to talk about moving towards the highest point. Water flows away from the highest point, right, to the lowest point. But it's this great imagery of the nations gathering in and flowing towards the temple because they have, they have uh, finally come to realize and, and submit to Israel's king. Well, where do we see king in that ancient hope in this passage? It goes on, this passage in, in Isaiah 2 goes on to say that um, he shall judge between the nations. Now, most of us want to say, well, that makes him a judge and not a, queen, uh, a king. But in, uh, in the ancient Near East and these lands surrounding at this time, uh, the, there wasn't this division of offices like we have in many modern political systems. Think of uh, Solomon when, uh, when two women bring to him one baby and they say to him, judge between us, whose baby is this? Solomon is acting as the king and the judge because that's what an ancient king does. He judges and he declares wisdom and he, uh, and he guides his people in that way. So what happens in this passage as Israel and Isaiah 2 is looking to this great salvation? What is their salvation? It's the king and his temple. And what happens? It goes on to say, they shall beat their swords into plowshares. Can you turn this down just a bit, Nathan? I feel like I'm shouting. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and neither shall they learn war anymore. So they're going to take their implements of war and make them implements of harvest. Neither shall they learn war anymore. There's not only going to be peace, there's going to be so much prosperity and produce that they're going to have to take their weapons of war and make them into weapons and make them into into tools of agriculture. So this king is going to bring the nations to the temple. (coughs) 
to receive unity with God, and he's going to bring about flourishing. It's the proper melding of these two hopes, the king and his temple. The king and his temple. So the king's role in ancient ancient Israel is to bring about flourishing. How many of you guys have heard of the the, um, hanging gardens of Babylon? One of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Anybody? Do we get some nods? Some people in school? All right. Good. Yeah, some of us? Okay. Good. You guys were much higher on Katniss and much lower on the, the Babylon Gardens than Lula Lake. Everybody's like, oh, yeah, the Babylon. But nobody had, like, read Hunger Games. <laughs> so these ancient, it's this, it's this, I mean, basically what it is, is it's, a, it's just what it sounds. It's a garden that hangs in the city, and it's one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Why would a king decide to do that in his city? Well, it's probably, it's the same reason that Solomon, when he writes his poem, the Song of Solomon, he uses a lot of garden imagery. It's the same reason that when God created his domain, all of creation, he did, he planted something. He planted the garden of Eden. Because as a king, your job is to bring about abundance and life for your people. That's what, that's, what, um, that's what this is driving at. That's why the king is such an important part of this salvation that Israel looks to because the king brings about abundance and flourishing and life. It is not a mistake also that as Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he was mistaken for one person. Do you remember? The gardener. He's mistaken for a gardener. It's another way that, that scripture is telling us This is a king who brings about flourishing, who brings about life. And the temple. The temple is the place where God and man can come together. You see, every religion starts with this problem, that there is something that we want, something that uh, that we expect, but then there's reality down here. There's always this division, and then... um, in a, in a deistic religion like Judaism, it's, God is holy and we are unholy. We are unclean. We are, uh, we are sinful people. But God has created a place for the nations to flow to him, for, for, he, uh, for him as a holy God to meet with the sinful people, and it's called the temple. It's the place where those two things can come together, where peace can be found, where forgiveness can be granted. So that's why you have in an ancient, this ancient salvation the king who brings flourishing in the temple that brings forgiveness. And you have to hold them together. You have to have them together. So in our passage, we encounter a man, Simeon, who is waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for these two things to come together. Thanks, John Michael. He's waiting for these two things to happen. He wants to see forgiveness. He wants to see the nations flowing to, the, to, the, to, to God, the, their covenant God, Yahweh. And he wants to see flourishing, the end of hunger, the, um, you know, the, the, the barren places made fruitful. That is the salvation that he's looking for. And somehow he claims to be encountering that right now. He's in God's temple And he encounters this little baby whom he calls the Christ. Now Christ, as you know, is not Jesus' last name. Neither is the, his middle name. Christ is a Greek 
translation of a word in Hebrew that is Messiah. Messiah. And Messiah, when we translate that into English, so we're doing a few hoops here, Messiah can be... Oh, thank you so much. Messiah can be rendered as God's anointed king. God's king. So here is Simeon in God's temple encountering God's king, God's anointed king. And it's no wonder that he breaks into song. He starts singing because he is saying, I am seeing coming about this consolation of Israel, this full ancient salvation, and it is great news. He's thrilled. Why don't you and I react that way more often to this, to good news, to this good news, when we hear about the salvation, when we hear about this rescue? Why don't we react that way? Well, I think it's because most of us settle for a modern salvation, for some form of an early ending to this story. Religious people, we really like the temple. We really like people who are into church and all this stuff are really into forgiveness. And many of us have shortened this story to just be, when we hear the word salvation or redemption or the consolation of Israel, any of this, this, um, all these words that have been used in Luke up to this point to describe what is happening in and through Jesus, we think of forgiveness. We think of the important but incomplete truth that Jesus has come to forgive us from this internal problems we call sins so that in the, at the end of our lives, our unembodied soul can escape this bad earth and live forever in this non-physical place called heaven. It's an important but an incomplete truth. You see, if that's what you hold as salvation, if forgiveness is what you hold as salvation in this unembodied eternal existence... If that's what we hold, then we're never really going to get our hands dirty here on earth, are we? We're never going to get our hands dirty. Did you ever, um, did you ever ask concerning your high school romances or those of you who are in that kind of stage, have you ever had this exchange with somebody older than you? You ask, how far is too far, right? Typical question that you want to know. And then the other person says, that's the wrong question. And you think, why? I just want to know how far is too far. Did you guys, is this familiar to you? I remember my youth pastor saying, it's the wrong question. And I didn't get it at all. You see, when we, but when we um, only isolate this forgiveness part, we're going to end up asking the wrong question of the person who comes across our path. When we only ask that, when we say, all right, my job, if I love the nations, is to see them saved from their private internal things, uh, unseen things called sin. And then when I encounter the suffering and the difficulty and the non-flourishing of the nations or the people around me or of my family, then my question becomes, how far do I have to go to get them to intellectually assent to this Jesus thing? You see, it's not really about the whole person that's asking how far is too far. The, the problem with the how far is too far question is you're not even worrying about this other person that you're called to love. You're wondering, how far can I go with my body? 
In the same way, we're treating somebody who has real needs and doesn't know Jesus as, um, as something less than human, less than a soul-body uh, soul unity. We're treating them as just this unembodied soul, and we have these physical needs that we have to meet at a minimal level so that we can get them to intellectually agree to these unseen realities. You see how we're treating the person? When we do that, we're treating them as less than human. We're treating them as, a, as something lower than the full human. So when we, when we settle for this, just the temple, just that side of it, the forgiveness side, <clears throat> then we're settling we're settling for a short story, an early ending. But there's those of, among us who really want to focus only on the uh, only on the flourishing part of this, only on the food and and the, and the resources. Um, those who, who probably categorize themselves as the liberal end of politics or or uh, religion. Um, when we focus on that, we're also it's also a short story. It's an early ending. Y'all hear what Mark Zuckerberg did last month? I think it might have been the very end of, of November. The founder of Facebook had a baby daughter. Do you know what he did? As like a little happy birthday, just kind of a little celebration. Yes. Do you know what half of he's worth? Something like that? $45 billion this man set aside. And he didn't just, I mean, he, he gave it to... To, in, in a sense, it's to charity, but he decided I'm, it's no, nobody's actually doing what I want to do in the right way. Or, or you know, he's been a little bit veiled about it. But his point, what his purpose is, to set up a business that actually will meet the needs uh, of of the world. He, he's alluded to better education, more open communities, and the cure of sicknesses. And he asked, "Can this happen in our day?" And his answer is yes, yes. That is loving flourishing, and that needs to be honored. That's a great thing. That is wonderful. He wants to see physical well-being on the planet. That's great news. But here's the problem. It's just not going to last. It's not going to last past that $45 billion. Have you guys seen the movie Goonies? You should watch the real version. Not the one that, not the, uh, not the edited version that had like every other word and we didn't know what was going on with our kids. It was bad. The jellies aren't even here to make fun of. It was their idea. Um, so the Goonies, at the end of it, they go, they, they find the big ship and they're searching all around. They finally find the, like, the inner layer where One-Eyed Willie is. And do you remember what One-Eyed Willie, what, what his circumstances, where he is, what he's surrounded with? Surrounded with treasure, right? He's got all his gold all around him. <clears throat> of course he's dead. But you know what else is surrounding him? His dead comrades. All of whom he has killed to hoard this treasure that can't save him at all. And, he's, and he, he, he dies anyways of starvation. You see, you can, you can flood resources into the world. But resources can't change the basic greed of the human heart, the, the basic inward slant. The, the, uh, Luther says we are curved in on ourselves, and that's the problem of the human heart. That's, our, that's the problem of our condition in this world. 
that you can give all the resources you can imagine, but you can't change people to want to share those resources. You can't make them want to give them away, want to evenly distribute them. <coughs> so either way you go, if you choose the temple, if you choose forgiveness, then it's, a, it's an early ending and you end up treating people like, like things to get to intellectually assent to something. And if you choose flourishing, then you end up, um, you end up with a short ending, an early ending that's not going to actually accomplish your purpose of worldwide flourishing in life. Flourishing and forgiveness have to be held together. I'm going to read for you um, an email that Rachel and I received from some friends of ours who are in Africa um, working towards poverty alleviation. Um, This is uh, the young lady, and uh, she writes about these Bible studies that she leads and uh, essentially support groups that where she speaks to women who are in very difficult circumstances. And I want you to listen to the way that she holds together flourishing and forgiveness, that she holds this great hope, and she won't settle for an early ending to this story. She says to them this, Daniel, the book of Daniel, records the harrowing story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they stood before the threat of being burned alive if they didn't bow down before Nebuchadnezzar and his idols. He shares their account like this. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he doesn't, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. She goes on to say, we know our God is able to save us, and he will. But even if he doesn't. She, She continues in prayer. Jesus You know how many times I've shared this passage this year. You know how many times I've stood before women who are destitute and asked them to wait for your salvation. You know how these folks stand before the fire of children not having enough food and how I've asked them to choose not to sell their bodies but to wait on the Lord. You know how many times I've uttered the words, even if it seems like God doesn't show you a way to provide for your new baby, though I believe he will, You cannot self-abort like you mentioned you might because you think that the pain of aborting your baby is more bearable than the other pain, that of knowing you never have enough food for any of your children. You know how many times I've asked them not to steal, even if they have no food in the house and a husband who takes all their money and spends it on beer and other women. Wait for the Lord instead. Remember what he's promised to his children. That is a grabbing onto this ancient salvation. That is a holding tight to this full rescue. To not settling for a short story where she doesn't care about the suffering of these women and only wants to talk to them about their eternal soul. She doesn't make that shortcut. <clears throat> Nor does she think, nor does she just say, let's get you food. Look, I've got food. I'll throw it your way. We'll take care of that. She doesn't try, she's not just doing holy relief work. She's casting them back on the promises of their powerful and good God. But waiting like this is painful. 
It hurts. It's painful. We've seen this ancient salvation. We've seen our, our early endings in, the, in our modern salvation. And now finally, we'd be remiss if we don't look at the suffering in salvation. Because this passage doesn't end with just this declaration of, I see God's king and I'm in this temple and it's going to come about. The passage continues where Simeon addresses Mary and Joseph. And he says to them, your son is going to be a dividing point. And a sword will pierce your own soul also. You see, Simeon knows, it's clear that he knows that suffering is part of this rescue. It's part of this rescue. Um, In his little brief, in his brief statement, Simeon alludes to or directly quotes from the Old Testament 15 times. That's just a commercial to read your Bible. It's a commercial to know your Old Testament so you can know your New Testament. He quotes 15 times, and in in those 15 times, most of them are from this section of the prophet Isaiah known as the suffering servant. This is the passage where we get, uh, um, this is the section where we get passages like, uh, by his wounds we are healed. By his wounds we are healed. But it also contains passages like, instead of um, the briar, we'll grow the myrtle. So if you ever, that's that's an evergreen tree instead of the, the thorns. If you ever wondered why we have an evergreen in our house at Christmas time, it's to remind us of this great salvation. This great salvation that, that, uh, that he declares that only comes about through suffering. It only comes about through suffering. You see, God's rescue plan is a lot like a gift swap. Did any of you guys do gift swaps this Christmas? Some of you guys, some of y'all in school did like an ornament swap or a book swap. Any of you guys do that? Yeah, some. I know you did, Cam, because my son did too. <clears throat> I was part of a gift swap this Christmas. My wife, Rachel and I both were. And at this gift swap, there's presents were being opened, and Rachel started eyeing one of those trendy little cool bags that, that I don't know, they're over-the-shoulder jobs. They're really cool. And she was really, she, I could tell she was eyeing it. She really wanted it. But before she could get her little hands on it, it got stolen twice and then was dead. You know how those games work, and you can't steal it anymore. But then there was this other little cool bag, not quite as good, but also there. And she actually got that one into her possession, but then somebody stole it from her. But it's okay, because in the end, she opened up this present, and it was a soap dispenser. <laughs> Seriously. That was in the gift swap. Unbelievable. But the good news is that when I opened my present, it turned out to be a woman's wallet. And I thought, well, at least, I mean, I knew it was from one of these outdoor stores like Rock Creek. And I thought, hey, I'll take it back and I'll have a little, you know, I can get some store credit and all. But immediately, before those were like fully formulated, the young lady next to me said, oh, I need one so bad. My wallet just broke. I just really need a wallet. And I was like, well, I guess I'll trade you for what you've got. Oh, but I need this too. I I can't give up my thermos mug. I I just got it, but I really need one. I was like, well, she said, I'll I'll pay you. I can just give you some cash. I was like, oh, it's Christmas. If I like take cash right now. I was like, no, it's okay. So we made out with a soap dispenser. Like that was the gift swap for us this year. Slightly painful. But God's rescue plan, his rescue plan is like a swap where I brought a really wonderful gift to this swap and ended up with nothing. 
And Rachel ended up with a soap dispenser. That is much more like God's great rescue plan. His rescue involves suffering. His rescue is going to move forward by means of suffering. You see, when you, when you encounter someone who's hungry and you give them some of your food, they now have food, but you have less of it. It's a swap. You take on their suffering and you give them your wholeness, your flourishing. When you encounter someone who's lonely, you take on some of their loneliness and their burden and you give them their, your friendship. You give of yourself. This is just the way that God has determined to move forward this rescue. A lot of it we can see, like when we give food or we give money. Now I've got less money and you've got more. A lot of it we can see. I'm convinced that the New Testament guides us to an understanding of our sufferings as God's children that we won't ever understand. That somehow the tears of God's children, when they are engaging, when we engage our suffering with and for Jesus, somehow those tears are watering the new creation. We're not, we're not going to always understand it. So that the ways that you face the fallenness and the lack of flourishing, the lack of forgiveness in this world, the ways that you engage that with Jesus and for him are actively bringing about his new creation, this rescue, this great salvation that includes forgiveness and flourishing for the nations. Where are you going to get the resources to do that? I used my debit card when I bought that present and brought it to the gift swap, and then I had less money, and the gift was in the pot. Where are you going to get resources to swap like that, to take on the suffering of the world and and put out uh, and dish out and live out this great rescue? It's still the king and his temple. You see, in our passage... We see Jesus lifted, declared to be king, and blessed. But one day, not long after this, Jesus would again be lifted and declared to be the king of the Jews. But in this lifting, he would not be blessed. He would be cursed on the cross. He he took on our suffering and our sin so that we could receive his riches. When we know those riches, these riches that are represented here in this meal that we're about to share together, then we will have the wealth and the resources to go out and engage in that swap with God's world that he loves so much. With, God, with all the nations that he longs to, to, to flow towards him, like water flowing up a mountain. This is a salvation and a consolation that provides resources for the giving, resources for the great swap that can shape your most difficult days and bring true consolation not only to you but to all the world. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. We want to be shaped. We want to be changed. We are people who say we believe this, who say we want it to be true of our inmost Um, basic desires and loyalties, but we live a totally different way. We need you to continue to remake us. We need you to give to us your forgiveness and your flourishing.
that we could give it away to the world. Do so now in this meal that we share together, please. We need more resources. We are poor people. We need to know the fullness of the inheritance that we have in you, Jesus. Amen.